The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to follow as I read God's Word this morning, Luke chapter 11, a somewhat unusual passage, one that once again I think people might look at the three paragraphs as they're set apart in my Bible and say, do these paragraphs have anything in common? I think they do, and I strive to draw that together as the Lord has shown me to do that. These are passages which are primarily, not entirely, but most of it, unique to Luke's gospel. I begin reading at verse 27 of Luke 11. This is God's Word. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God, and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, It will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is God's holy word. You don't know, most likely, the name of Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W, but he was a rather well-known philosopher in Britain and for most of his life an outspoken atheist. But in 2004, Anthony Flew announced that God probably did exist after all. He actually authored a book with this title, There is a God, colon, How a Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. He said that it was inconsistencies in the theory of evolution that first got him started, seeing that his secularism could not be entirely correct. 
And then he said this also regarding the issues of creation. He said, the unbelievable complexity of the arrangements needed to support life on earth suggest that intelligence, capital I, was involved first. You know, it's a common cry of people who cling to the atheistic school of thinking that they would say God has not granted them enough evidence of himself. The famous atheistic thinker Bertrand Russell always said, I will, somebody said, what will you tell God someday, Mr. Russell? He said, I'll tell him he didn't leave me enough evidence. Well, about that, Anthony Flew wrote this. He said, quote, it seems to me that the case for a God who has the characteristics of power and great intelligence is now much stronger than it ever was before. I smile when I read that because it's as though Mr. Flew is telling us that God has somehow mysteriously improved the evidence for himself in the lifetime of Anthony Flew. When in fact, we know the mind of this man was enlightened to see truth that was always there. That the Holy Spirit opened his mind to, to glimpse things and behold things that were manifestly obvious before, although he long refused to behold them. Now, in Luke 11, Jesus was dealing with a group of several different kinds of people. Some were disciples. Others were people who were so hostile to him, we saw these folks last time, that they actually attributed him to be doing demon exorcisms because he was a demon. That's how much they opposed him. But now he speaks to another group of people who have been evident in this crowd for a while, the people who said, we want some better sign from you. We want something more to establish in our minds that you really are who you are claiming to be. And they implied the evidence just was insufficient so far. Now, as I said, much of the passage that I read here in Luke is unique to this gospel it addresses these folks who didn't quite seem to get it yet where trust in Christ is concerned. And I'm going to ask if we could examine how Jesus responded to them, believing that perhaps we can learn some things from it, even though we come to it, I hope, as believers. First of all, this, and I give it to you in this summary, God blesses those who behold Christ with no distractions in between. God blesses those who behold Christ with no distractions in between. Verses 27 and 28, a woman in the crowd had seen Jesus drive out a demon and do wonderful things. She was very impressed. She spoke as a mother would speak. And by the way, in ancient culture, not just biblical, but all ancient cultures, it was commonly believed that a woman's greatest stature in the world would be if she gave birth to a famous son. So I think that's in in mind here as this woman cries out to Jesus and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother. What a mother she must be. She must be truly proud of you. Now this woman certainly meant well and there wasn't really anything that wrong with what she said, but Jesus saw it perhaps going askew off in a wrong direction and so he He gently pulled her in and said, wait a minute, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God 
and who keep it. In other words, it's not so much a matter for you to have to laud my mother as if she was the most exceptional mother of all time. It's more important that you know I am speaking the Word of God that must be believed and trusted. I don't want to go too far down this side road today, but you know, it took the early church quite a, a few centuries to begin loading credits and applause and attention on the Virgin Mary before she became anything like what she is in some segments of the church today. She, as you know, in many places, the devotion is more to Mary, really, than to Christ. And they would say, well, we, we go to Christ through Mary, but the problem is sometimes I think people don't even know who they're going to because she gets all the attention. You can go to places, especially in South America today, Central America, where what some of us would call Mariolatry, worship of Mary, is so extreme, statues carried through the streets, people bowing and bringing flowers and bringing sacrifices and kissing the feet of the statue and all of these things, prayers made to Mary, that that all those layers of superstition end up with them never really grasping Christ as the center of all things. The biblical Mary was given to us as a great example of how to trust in God. We've spoken of this on other occasions. She was certainly a great Christian, almost the first Christian, to really trust in the full message that God was bringing His Son to earth in a miraculous way. And she said, let it be to me, Lord, as you have said. She was a model believer, worthy of praise for her faith. But be careful. She was never meant to be an object of praise and adoration in herself. Well, it seems that human beings crave to worship things on the horizontal level where we can get a hold of them. After all, God, to worship the invisible, high, holy, exalted God who is completely other than what we are is to worship something that cannot be seen. And, and people say, how can I connect with this God? He's, he's so far from my daily experience. And so give me something I can get a hold of. Give me a person like myself. Well, of course, he's done that, hasn't he? He's given us Jesus, who is the person like ourselves. But people say, oh, I could identify with a, a peasant girl who became the, the vehicle of God's uh, incarnation. So I, I think going to Mary would be going to a friendly person that I could worship. Be careful. Be careful of any substitute that you put between yourself and God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the center of all faith and adoration. I knew a man years ago early in my ministry. He was a fine man, and I think he was a fine Christian, but he had a habit of always telling me about his mother. I hadn't known her. She was passed away before I came to be this man's pastor, but he said, oh, pastor, if you could only know my mother, what a godly woman. Oh, you should see her Bible. She just wore Bibles out, and she prayed all the time, and she was so Christ-like. And every time I would talk to him, he was full of praise for his mother. And there were honestly times when I almost thought this man had begun to think that he would be a, a fine Christian himself because he was his mother's son. And if he really thought that, that was a problem. What are some of the things we might put between or value ourselves being part of or paying attention to that, that in a sense 
are not distinctives of the gospel itself. We might say, oh, I belong to this fine denomination called the PCA. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Reformed Christian. I've got my theology all correct. Oh, let me tell you about the Bible translation I use. It's the best. Or whatever. And we could be putting something between ourselves and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls this woman and calls us along with her to be blessed when we behold him without distractions in between. Secondly, this morning, we move from verse 29 and following, to see that God blesses those who value the signs he has already revealed. Now Jesus becomes rather sharp as he speaks to the crowd, and he he actually uh, uses a not-so-nice word about them. This generation is an evil generation. You are actually evil in something you're doing, he's saying. Seeking for signs all the time, because they'd been demanding that. They They had been asking for that in earlier passages here where they wanted to see signs. And he says to go on asking and asking and asking is actually an evil thing. Just stop and think. I've told you as we spent this many weeks studying Luke, I gave the, the gospel study the subtitle, The Gospel of Astonishment. Because time after time after time, we've seen people hearing Jesus speak, watching what he did, seeing him calm the sea, exercise demons, raise the dead interpret the law, do all these things, and they were amazed. They were astonished. And now here's people that say, give me a sign. And you want to say, what's wrong with you? What is it going to take? If Jesus came along and said, all right, how about this one? Tonight you can go out and study the night sky, and you'll see stars arranging themselves to spell out the letters J-E-S-U-S in the heavens. Will that do it? If you haven't been impressed 999 times, what can I do for you the thousandth time that is going to make you believe God is speaking through me? And so he says, here is the one sign you're going to get. And it's, you know, if Jesus says, here's the most important sign, that you better believe that's important. And he calls it the sign of Jonah. Now, most of us know pretty easily what he's talking about here because even if you know nothing else about the minor prophets, if I said, tell me the name of a minor prophet, you know, I, I won't say name them all in order because unless you remember your little VBS song that you can sing, you, know, you probably can't do that. But if I said, name a minor prophet, many of you would say, Jonah. Tell me about Jonah. You could tell me about Jonah running in disobedience from God because he didn't want to evangelize ungodly people, then being caught up in that storm at sea, going into the sea, being swallowed by a great fish, going through that amazing experience, which we say sounds improbable, but it certainly is not impossible, that he was actually in this huge fish for a period of days, then was disgorged, and finally went and preached. This is a historic event, not a fairy tale. Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, and there was a revival A pagan society believed this man when he said, you're going to come under God's judgment if you don't repent. Now Jesus says, that foreshadowed me. And you can see how, I think. In a manner of speaking, Jonah died. Well, not literally, but he disappeared into that fish's belly. He was all but dead. And God saved his life, and you could say resurrected him, brought him back, and then worked a miracle. 
Well, isn't that a wonderful foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus in just a period of months after he was speaking here? And he was saying, look, you want a sign. There will be one, and it will be an epic sign happening at the center of history, well witnessed by many eyewitnesses, established as a fact, so that if people come along in future time and ask any kind of question, like, how can I know God is true? How do I know there's a heaven? How do I get peace with God? How can my sins be forgiven? I want a sign that God is doing something. Jesus said the sign is going to be given and it's going to stand there in the center of history and if you ignore it in so many words, you're a fool. And so he mentions some Gentiles. Now, obviously, you know, an irritating thing to mention to a Jewish audience. Gentiles who reviewed evidence that was given to them in their life and they decided about the facts. And he mentions the queen of the south in verse 31. She's also called the queen of Sheba, a real historical person. If you could find her story, if you wish to go see it in 1 Kings 10. This great, powerful queen had heard about King Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the epitome of the kingdom of Israel in all of his wealth. He was the wisest man alive. He, he uh, ruled over the farthest extent of the kingdom of David. And he was amazing. And people told stories. Do you know Solomon eats off solid gold plates and things like that? And people said, oh, there can't be a king that great. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. By the way, she came, we think, from an area somewhere around Yemen. You probably know Yemen is in the news these days. Pretty prominent country in the Middle East right now. Small country, but important. And this queen came. She said, I've got to investigate. I can't believe there could be a king like this Solomon I've heard about. She came. She looked into it. And, and she, she discovered that the reports weren't grand enough. Solomon was greater than she even had heard. And when she saw it and saw his kingdom and, and tasted his wisdom, she gave praise to Solomon's God. She was a pagan individual who could see the evidence of God's work in something when she investigated it. And then Jesus raises also all those thousands of non-Israelites in Nineveh, those hated enemies, who repented and believed Jonah's message. And so now he says something that certainly didn't endear him to these Jewish folks that he spoke to when he said, look, something greater than Jonah is among you. He meant himself and the whole phenomenon of the cross and resurrection that were about to occur. And he said, if you, people of Israel, cannot see what God is doing by what he's already revealed, if you cannot believe the obvious, then guess what? An ancient pagan queen from the south and all those people in Nineveh are going to stand at judgment day and condemn you, God's own called and elected people, because of your willful unbelief, not because he hasn't made things known, because you won't believe what he has told you already. Romans chapter 1 makes it so evident. You probably know that passage where Romans begins to build its argument by saying, what can be known about God is plain to men. God has revealed it, and he did that from the creation of the world, so people are without excuse. What more signs does God have to give than what he's already given in the resurrection of Christ? 
Well, then we go to this passage at the end, verses 33 to 36. It looks like a whole different thought, but I think it relates. And I would relate it this way, to say God blesses all who are not blinded by the obvious. You see, Jesus began to talk about a lamp in a room. And he says, if you have a lamp and you bring it into the house, of course the lamp brings light to the house, and and light is a blessing. You can see what you're doing. You can find things that you might not be able to find. And you don't take the lamp and put it down in the root cellar or cover it up with a basket. You want its light. You want it to shine. You want it to illumine things. Well, of course, he was using this as an, an analogy here. And the lamp is the truth of the Holy Spirit of God that comes into the life of a Christian man or woman and lets us see truth for the first time. We see reality as it is. We were people stumbling in the dark, but when the Spirit of God comes, He reveals truth from Christ. He reveals the truth of God, and His wisdom and the grace of God flows into our lives, and all of a sudden we say, I never saw that before. Well, you couldn't see it before because your foolish eyes were darkened. We know the Bible tells us elsewhere that unbelief loves darkness rather than light. Why? If you're doing cunning things, deceitful things, you don't want people to see you doing those. You want to prepare your plots and get everything lined up out of the way somewhere, out of the public eye. Light, of course, always represents truth as God brings it. He shows things for what they are. He lets us see the way. He lets us understand the universe and know how he's doing things. There's that place where Paul in the New Testament says that we Christians are people of the day. We're not people of the night who have to crawl around like worms under a rock. We live out at high noon, and we live with the light of Christ showing us what is true, where to walk, how to obey, and how to know God. I don't suppose there's anybody here who's ever had this experience that I must say probably has happened to me at least a few times in my life. I'm rushing to go somewhere, leaving the house. My keys, we have our little thing with several hooks on it by our back door where our car keys hang, so we're supposed to always know where they are, and I go there, no keys. I'm in a hurry. All of a sudden, no keys. This is a problem. It must be someone else's problem. It must be my wife's problem. I say, wife, where are my keys? I can't find my keys anywhere. And my blessed wife gets into the act and picks them up where they're sitting right on top of my dresser in plain view and says, here are your keys, dear. She tries not to be scornful in her voice. I couldn't see the obvious. Well, Christian, we don't live in the dark. We don't live under blind confusion and and all in shadows and deep caverns. We are people to whom God has made Himself known by His Word and in His Holy Spirit. They have that wonderful, it's one of my favorite verses in in both letters of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God has said, you have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so you, Christian, can come and ask God for guidance. You're not without it. Just say, Lord, 
you've already given so much. I need light for the next place to put down my foot. I'm not sure where to turn tomorrow, but I know I'm not in confusion. You will show me the way. You will guide me because you've already enlightened my path. If you don't have that light and you call yourself a Christian, then it has to be that you somehow are resisting or rebelling against the light of God that has been shown. You are casting your own dark shadow over your life. But it may be that you're a person who's never seen that light in the first place. And you say, well, it seems to me that the world is all shades of gray and most of them darker than than the, the next one, and I don't know where to turn, and I don't have a source of truth. Well, I don't want to be overly simplistic this morning, but I'll be just as simplistic as Jesus was here. There's a lamp that God will turn on in your life. If you come to Him as a humble person and say, Lord, I, I don't know where to go. I don't seem to understand the truth. I don't understand eternity. Oh, Lord God, for Jesus' sake, turn the lights on for me. He will do that. He's promised to do it. Even people like Anthony Flew came to see that in his life. Came to see that the truth of God is an obvious thing. You almost, you know, you end up breaking your kneecap because you're bumping into it all the time, and yet you say, oh, it isn't there. I hope you're not one who insists that way that God's truth in the gospel of Jesus isn't an obvious thing. Open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes. And as a Christian with the hymn writer, I pray that you are one who says, what more can God say than to me he's already said, to one who for refuge to Jesus has fled. Let's pray together. Father, You are the God of light. The Scripture says the entrance of your word gives light. You dwell in unapproachable light. There is no darkness in you at all. And yet we are so foolish. Some of the most learned of men and women on earth stumble in the dark and utter things that are completely foolish because they've never seen by the light that you have shed. Lord, enlighten your people. Those who know you, give them light for the path of obedience. Give them the guidance that they need. And those who are completely in the dark, clueless, Lord, hit the switch. By your Holy Spirit, turn the lights on for them, that they might see Christ steadfastly and look upon him with wonder and trust. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.